You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome, everyone, and particularly welcome to our new listeners who have joined us since we formed a partnership with the Missio Alliance. We're glad that you're with us as well. Really, the quickest way to get to know what I do is to go to my website, stevecusswords.com. There you can get a free chapter of my book. You can also get some templates that help you with your emotional health. And then coming up in March, I'm uh, hosting a really neat two-day workshop that helps you dive deep into family systems theory, helps you identify some triggers in your own life, and also helps you figure out how to notice how anxiety and pressure spreads in a group. This podcast, we have a guest today, a wonderful guest. I'm joined by Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, Russell is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. He took that role in 2013. Wall Street Journal describes Russell as vigorous, cheerful, and fiercely articulate. And having uh, interviewed him now, I would completely agree. He was also named by Politico magazine as the top 50 influence makers in Washington. I'll just say this about Russell. I am not a Southern Baptist, but I'm profoundly grateful that he is in this role because of everything that has been thrown his way since he took on the presidency in 2013. He is a man of great wisdom, of kindness and clarity, but also of conviction. He speaks well and boldly to some of the most pressing issues that are facing us today, both inside the church and outside the church. Russell recently posted a really fun video outside the Johnny Cash Museum in Nashville, uh, where he lives, and uh, he was chatting about Kanye West's new album, so I thought that'd be a fun way to start off our conversation. Uh, You'll be eavesdropping in as Russell's talking a little bit about what he speaks up on and why. One of the things I I, uh, see as my calling is to uh, help people to think through the assumptions of, uh, it's very easy um, for, for me, I think the, the most difficult questions are not the ones that are being debated uh, on Facebook right now, but the things that we aren't debating at all, uh, either because we've sort of already accommodated to a pre-digested sort of uh, read on something that's going on, or because we're not aware uh, of what's coming for us. And so that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time dealing with issues of technology because I think that that often you have Christians who and, and non-Christians who aren't uh, aren't formed at the conscience level uh, to be able to deal with advances in technology in, in all the, the various ways that that affects uh, people and churches. Yeah, it's a fascinating phrase you just used, how people already have a pre-digested opinion. Mm-hmm. What, what skill do you employ to help? open up people to possibility? Uh, I, my general approach is that of, um, is that to, to, tr- to seek to emulate uh, Jesus and the prophets of uh, trying to bypass those um, pre-made fences uh, to uh, biblical ideas and to appeal to the imagination and to the conscience, uh, which I think is what um, is what Jesus does, what Nathan the prophet does with, with David um, and elsewhere, which is to, to try to find where are those ways that we tend to protect ourselves. Uh, and I find the people who are the most effective 
at reaching me with a new uh, idea or a new concept uh, do the same thing. What they do is to come in and find uh, find a place where I already uh, understand this concept to some degree and build a bridge from that. And also to come in and to create a sort of manageable crisis uh, in terms of uh, something that's holding me back uh, from being able to to see or to understand or to grow in, in some way. So I, I find that's m- most effective with me. And that's that's really sort of on a broader scale what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I find fascinating is in, in 2013, you made the shift from a seminary provost and dean right. into this role as the president of the uh, Ethics and Religious uh, Liberty Commission. Mm-hmm. For the entire Southern Baptist Convention, that's a giant role. Um, I would be curious um, how you manage the weight of the role. Like that, it feels to me that you came into a role that has a heavy weight. Uh, how was the adjustment for you? Well, the first uh, the first four years uh, was a frenetic uh, whirlwind uh, because. Uh, what I had to do was to come in and, and essentially reshape the entire organization, uh, the way that the organization related to um, virtually every constituency. And so a great deal of um, a great deal of the first four years was just an exhausting pace. And what I didn't understand at the time is in this in this job, there's really no way to schedule uh, what is going to happen because I can have I could sit down and, and schedule out uh, the next month, but I don't know uh, when uh, in any given day there's going to be a, a shooting in Las Vegas and and pastors are needing uh, insight into how to speak to their their people about why why God would allow this or when there's going to be a sexual abuse. Um, uh, crisis emerging in some sector of evangelicalism or something else that's that's going to emerge. Uh, so the first four years were a frenetic blur of activity. And one of the things that I realized uh, at, at some point there is that I was losing the time to think and to pray and to reflect. Uh, so I, I wasn't I wasn't losing the time to read and to analyze and all of those things, but I was losing that time uh, to just reflect. And so I had to come in and restructure some things in my life. And I was, I was, uh, I was um, stretched much, much too thin at that point. Yeah. Well, and I am once in a while, I'll have a guest on the show. I, I think you are one of them where you step into a role where there's not enough precedent before you to guide how to do that role. Right. right. That's kind of what you were describing. Yes. Well, in, in some ways there, there were precedents, but there were precedents in different places and in different times that had to be integrated together uh, in a way that, that hadn't been the case. And because we were moving into um, some very fast changing sorts of cultural times. So, uh, often what I have to do is to, if you followed me around, uh, you might think that I'm giving contradictory sorts of messages. Uh, so, for instance, I can think of a day 
uh, when I was speaking, the, the subject was um, political engagement at the time. And I was speaking to one group of people who were uh, sort of uh, baby boomer evangelicals, very much in a God and country uh, sort of uh, sort of mode. And my message to them was, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18. And so to, to relinquish the idea that uh, political idolatry can resolve uh, the, the issues facing them and so forth. And then I spoke to a group of uh, very young church planters uh, who were in a very different mode. I was also speaking to them from John 18, but the message was, you're not only standing where Jesus stood, you're also standing where Pilate stood in terms of the ultimate decision-making uh, ability when it comes to some of these questions. And so you can't say, I'm going to completely disengage without uh, doing what evangelicals have done in the past when they said, for instance, we're not going to talk about human slavery, we're not going to talk about uh, Jim Crow or lynching, which means, of course, you are talking about those things because you're, right. you're baptizing the status quo. So you're having to speak to different uh, constituencies, not in different ways, uh, because you're trying to appeal to those constituencies, but actually the reverse. You're trying to say, let's see where the, the particular vulnerabilities are here uh, in the same way that um, a doctor uh, would speak in a very different way uh, to someone who is uh, obese uh, and, and whose health is, is suffering from that as opposed to someone who may have an eating disorder and whose health is, is uh, I mean, ultimately you're getting them to the same place of equilibrium and, and health, but you have to come at it from very, very different directions. Yeah, what I hear you saying is part of your role and, and service is to contextualize the gospel to the people you're speaking to. And yes. that looks different to each group. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, one of the things that has struck me about you, Russell, is um, by all accounts and your own reputation, you're a very kind human being. You're thoughtful. You're a person of peace. You know, you're not really a, a rabble rouser. You're, you're not, you don't intentionally uh, provoke, I, I think. Uh, and yet, I think because of your role in the Southern Baptist Convention, you are a lightning rod of criticism. It, was that new? Uh, first of all, am I misreading that? But if I'm not misreading that, was that new? Was that a new experience for you as you came into this role to suddenly be a lightning rod when before you were fairly, um, I don't know, you didn't seem to attract much criticism? One of the points of vulnerability that I have is a sense of um, uh, a sense of, of wanting to be accepted and belong uh, at least within my Christian community. And so uh, fear of man is very much uh, a reality for me. So there was a there was a magazine article several years ago that that the headline was Russell Moore fears no man. And I laughed as I said, that's the, uh, that's the least true thing uh, that's ever been. I, I fear man very much, which is why I have, to, um, I have to work around that in all sorts of ways by spending a lot of time reflecting on Galatians 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 4 uh, and other passages about uh, seeing oneself in light of the judgment seat of Christ, not these uh, 
ad hoc judgment seats that are taking place uh, every day uh, around us all. Uh, and because I have to say, okay, where are my particular points of vulnerability? And one of those things would be uh, listening to uh, all of the, the, the chatter that's out there. Now, I can read that when I'm talking to someone else. So when I'm talking to someone else, I, I will have people uh, any given day who will say, you know, what do I do? I'm really being hurt by the fact that I'm taking criticism in my church or I'm taking criticism in my uh, parachurch ministry or whatever. And what I would always say is, well, you're really not taking that much uh, criticism because what you're doing is doing something, uh, which means that you're, you're going to have that. Uh, but and I had this conversation just last week to say 99% of the people who know who you are, love you and support you. One percent of the people uh, don't like uh, what it is that you're doing. And that actually should be higher uh, because that means that if not, they don't really understand what it is that you're doing. If you're doing something really substantive, but you're listening to that one percent in a way that is enabling you not to be able to actually serve um, everybody. Uh, and so I, I find that sometimes what people tend to do is when they start doing something new and there is, uh, th there is some criticism that comes, they immobilize uh, and, and they simply stop moving forward. So I can't do that. So uh, one of the things I do is not to listen to that. The other thing was is to have um, uh, I had a wise uh, older pastor who said to me uh, at one point, uh, who said, you need to, when you're receiving feedback of any kind, ask yourself, is this someone that I would go to, to seek counsel about anything uh, in my life? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to simply move forward. If the answer to that is yes, then you need to, you need to say, let me spend time uh, examining this and, and looking at this. I think that's actually very wise counsel. Uh, but I find that there are often people in leadership. There was a, a pastor one time um, that I was talking to when I was having sort of a difficult time before I kind of learned how to navigate my vulnerabilities here, who uh, was in a, a congregation and he called me and he said, I'm thinking about leaving because I just have this, this persistent uh, backlash that's taking place in my congregation. And I said, well, explain it to me. Um, and so he's talking about it. And I said, what percentage of this congregation would you assume that's coming from? And he said, 5%. And I said, okay, well, why on earth would you abandon the 95% because of this 5%? And the reason for that is because the 95% uh, aren't sitting around and thinking, well, our pastor is besieged. I think our pastor's our pastor. He's doing uh, he's doing his his job, and so they don't have a reason to call him and to say, "Hey, just so you know, we want you here." They assume that that's the case. So you give this inordinate amount of power to uh, five percent of people, which in that context tended to be uh, the the people that. Uh, 
uh, at least it seems to me, that the Scripture describes in uh, 2 Timothy 2 and elsewhere as quarrelsome people. There are going to be people who actually enjoy fighting and who enjoy the sort of status that it gives them uh, in their church or in their community or wherever in being the quarrelsome person. Um, why would you give that sort of power? I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, it, it's all, I'm not comparing the, the 5% in this church to terrorists, but it's the same <laughs> sort of, it's the same sort of mentality yeah. at work. Yeah. Is, it, you can take a small group of, of people and if you create an uncomfortable enough situation, then you can simply move forward. Well, that's not, that's not a wise way for him to make decisions. So that's easy to see when it's someone else. It's harder to see when it's you. Well, I, I think you really have touched on a, a chronic challenge for any leader. I think a lot of pastors, I, I do think a lot of pastors get into ministry and part of our own vulnerability is our people-pleasing tendency. Yes. We want to be liked. And yet we also yeah. want to be prophetic. And those two are mm -hmm. often at odds. And right. I, I think you have hit on something that th there is a small population who actually have a vested interest in misunderstanding you. That, sure. And if you believe the lie that you can just keep meeting, you know, if you keep meeting with me long enough, you will realize what I know is true, which is I'm a decent person. It's never going to happen. Oh, no. And that's I, I had a conversation with someone else um, who uh, was really uh, dealing with uh, someone who was constantly kind of coming after him on social media and other places. And so his assumption was, if I just build a relationship with this person, then uh, we're going to be able to, to come to a, a kind of reconciliation and move forward. And I had to say, your problem is you have a, a, a deep sense of naivete about what is going on in the life of this person. There are many people where that is the case. I said, but if you look at someone and someone in his life is constantly uh, on the igniting end of controversy uh, against other people, then it's probably not because this person has just been placed into those situations. It's probably because this is a person who enjoys that kind of thing. Uh, in which case, um, you're spending a lot of time trying to explain yourself to him and to cultivate him actually is not only not helping you in doing what it is that God's called you to do, it's also not helping this quarrelsome person because it's actually fueling something that is hurting him. I mean, th th this is... Um, I think if you have a long enough view and you sort of watch people, and especially in ministry, there's sort of a cycle that comes through. So the people who actually enjoy uh, the tumult of a, of a controversy, I'm not talking about people who are in controversy. I'm talking about the people who enjoy the tumult of a controversy and, who, uh, and, and for whom that uh, needs to be status quo. It ends in a very, very miserable, joyless, uh, Christless uh, sort of life, and it ends up sabotaging every long-term sort of. So I know people who at different points in their lives would have been seen as, well, this person is a fighter for the gospel. And the way you can see that he's a fighter for the gospel is he's constantly uh, taking down people who are wrong. 
And that does not end well. Uh, in, in every situation that I've seen, that ends up much more in a Saul-like uh, end than a, a David-like uh, end. And so I, I, I think you just have to, you have to see that and see the long-term, uh, the long-term trajectory there. There was a couple that said we we drove several hours to get here because we wanted to hear you, and we really love you. We know that everybody else hates you or something along those lines. We, we, we know that, that you're, uh, and, and I said to my wife, I, I have this comment constantly and I don't know why people think that that's an encouraging thing uh, to say to someone. Um, you know, so, so that would be, that would be more of it. And, and also because the, the things, uh, that that the the reasons that people uh, tend to show opposition to me are uh, almost always uh, race, racial reconciliation and justice, uh, uh, care for the vulnerable in terms of either sexual abuse uh, sorts of issues on the one hand or, uh, my commitment to uh, the life of unborn children or the dignity of immigrants or, or what have you, um, those issues. So those are not things that, uh, those are things that I am very, very confident in what Jesus would have me to do. And to know that if I did what would make some of these people happy, I would be unfaithful to my own conscience, and I would be unfaithful to, um, I'd be unfaithful to Christ. And so that, yeah, it, that just doesn't, um, I have to, I have to uh, remind myself of that and think, but so that's one of the reasons why I just don't spend a lot of time thinking about, or, or I, I can't say I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I don't spend a lot of time looking at it. And that's especially true when, for instance, I don't have any reason to, a complaint. Uh, my uh, community is more supportive and encouraging than I have a right to have. So there was, you know, there was someone who made a motion to um, to uh, dissolve my uh, entity, which has happened all the way back in in the history of our denomination. No matter who was president, it's happened all the way back, especially during the civil rights era. Uh, that was happening a lot, uh, but uh, the my denomination voted ninety nine and a half percent to well, who can ask for for more than that? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I don't have any re- reason to complain about that sort of thing. recently published an article about your love for Frederick Buechner. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be fun just to change tax and uh, hear you tell us what you love about his writing. What's he done for you? Frederick Buechner was one of the people that I think 
the Lord used to uh, rescue my faith and probably to save my life when I was in a uh, a spiritual crisis in high school. A very a very profound depression and a sense of um, because. I was looking around and seeing in my sort of Bible Belt uh, Christian world uh, a lot of physical abuse of children, a lot of uh, unmitigated racism, a lot of uh, cover-ups of moral misbehavior depending upon the power of the people who were carrying out that moral misbehavior, all of those sorts of things. And so I, I came to the point where I started wondering uh, is Christianity, in fact, just a means of advancing some political or cultural or economic uh, agenda? And if that's the case, that means that everything that I've put my hope and trust in uh, is gone. So it, it threw me into a, a very real crisis. So there were several people who were able to speak to me at the time uh, that I didn't know that I was able to read. One of those was C.S. Lewis. The other was, uh, another was Frederick Beekner. And the way that Beekner came into my life was I was in a, a library uh, near me that had a discard, um, a discard uh, books uh, sale. And uh, Beekner's book, A Room Called Remember, was one of those. And as I read that book, I could, uh, I could hear someone who very clearly was not trying to sell me anything, was not trying to uh, manipulate me in any way, but, but was truly bearing witness to something real in his life. And so after that, I read everything that, that Beekner read. And Beekner is one of those people uh, where, you know, some people you read and then you move on. Uh, he's one of those people that I return to. It, it's rare that two weeks go by. Yeah, uh, that's that what you wrote. Read. It's a, yeah. at least every couple of weeks you're picking up some Beekner. Yeah, and but, and actually, it actually is a lot more than that because um, he, he, there's a, a little compilation of his writings that I actually tell people when people say, well, "Where should I start if I want to read him?" I'll say, "Get the uh, the, the little daily devotional sort of uh, book, listening to your life." Yeah. And just read through that and see, you'll find places that, uh, that that you'll say, this is something I want to look more at, whether it's one of the novels or one of the memoirs or, or one of the uh, nonfiction um, uh, expositional sorts of books or one of the sermons or whatever, and then go and track that down. And so I, I not only have that, and I refer to it a lot, um, but I also have uh, an email uh, that that comes in uh, every day. Oh, uh, yeah. That is essentially one of those. Yeah, and so that's uh, that, that's really uh, helpful to me in my life. Oh man, I was introduced to Beekner in my twenties when I was a hospital chaplain. Very similar story to you, except for me, my faith was shifting based on the pain and suffering I was oh, yeah. working with. Um, but and and just like you, an incredible gift. It felt like he was guiding me. Uh, out of a fog yeah. and, and and also honoring the fog at the same time somehow. He's yeah. really quite a remarkable person. What, what struck me listening to you is how your uh, faith disruption as a teenager uh, was generated by the very issues that you now address as a faith leader. Yes. And, and that's, um, 
I said to a group of people one time, um, you know, they they will uh, sometimes when when there's advice being given uh, to writers, uh, sometimes people will say, choose uh, one person uh, to whom you're speaking. And that sort of specificity and particularity actually helps you to be able to speak to everybody. And I think that's true. And in the case of the, the general trajectory of my ministry, I am speaking to that 15-year-old boy uh, mm. that I know is out there. I mean, I, I hear from them all the time who are overhearing uh, a great deal of things that are going on and who are asking, um, is, is Christianity authentic uh, or is it something else? Um, and so that's... That's uh, that, that's a driving force of my life. And also because I'm thinking about um, in, in uh, Galatians one and two, Paul uh, talks about the, the false teaching uh, and the false practice that had come into the church in Galatia. And he said, I didn't yield to them for a moment so that the gospel would be preserved for you. Uh, and, and I think about all of those people in my life, uh, whether it is the pastor that I observed who, when he started getting pressure not to baptize an African-American family into a, a, into a white church in, in the South, stood up to that. If he had simply said, well, I'm going to preserve the unity of the congregation by not uh, having that happen, then he actually would have sacrificed the witness and the integrity of the gospel, not only for that family, but for everybody who's overhearing that, saying, do you really believe John 3.16, or are you simply trying to maintain the ease of your life right now? Or the people like Lewis and, and Beekner and others who uh, weren't simply uh, regurgitating whatever was acceptable and cliched at the moment, but who were actually taking this this word seriously uh, enough to speak to uh, to speak to people beyond just whoever was right in front of them at the time, and so that's what I aspire to. I don't uh, I don't uh, achieve it, but that's what I, I aspire to do is to is to speak to that fifteen year old. And actually, in in and I think I only recognize this in retrospect. Uh, everything that I've ever written has come out of that sort of uh, experience. So um, Adopted for Life, a book that I wrote about uh, adoption and orphan care, that came about because when my wife and I had been through years of, of infertility and she came to me and said, I think the Lord might be calling us to adopt, uh, I was very reluctant. And I would not have, if you had asked me abstractly, what do you think about adoption? I would have said adoption's fantastic. I would have given you a whole list of biblical reasons and cultural reasons and everything else why adoption is good and you should pursue it. But when it came to me, there was a, a kind of resistance to it. And I had to examine what is that resistance? And the resistance was, um, uh, well, would these be my own children or would this be something sort of different from that. And would this be a risk uh, to, you, you can't, can't predict. Risk. So I just had to sit back and explore, where is that coming from? 
that I never would have known. If, and so I was sort of writing that book to myself before I had gone through that experience because I knew there would be a lot of people in that situation. I wrote a book on temptation that came out of a time when I had so many people around me who were in Christian leadership who either were blowing their lives up with moral failure or were persisting even more even more worrisome to me, persisting in kinds of moral failure that don't tend to get people fired in evangelical Christianity. So malignant forms of narcissism and outbursts of, of rage and, and all of those things that are disqualifying in Scripture, but they're not disqualifying in terms of Christian leadership and often, um, at least in the short term, become uh sort of effective uh, in the short term for Christian leadership. And so seeing all of that and becoming scared by it to some degree caused me to, to kind of write to myself, here's how to understand the, the process of temptation and, and so forth. So that's, that's sort of the, the mode that I always uh, tend, to, tend to, to go in. And one of the things that's helpful, it kind of loops back to what you were talking about earlier. It's been helpful to me is there's a, Secular, non-Christian leadership uh, guru, for lack of a better word, uh, that I listen to constantly because uh, he he has reshaped the way that I see many things, Seth Godin. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is um, the fact that he'll say, go and look at the Amazon reviews for Moby Dick. And for uh, uh, my favorite novel, Brothers Karamazov, and for, you know, a a number of other things that are um, uncontested in terms of of what they bring to the table. And you're going to find one star, no star reviews of people critiquing that. He said the, the response when you see that is not, oh, well, Herman Melville was wasting his time with Moby Dick. It's, well, Moby Dick's not for you. Don't read Moby Dick. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of what, uh, of what we all do in ministry where we're going to have to say to, it may not be for you. Uh, it may not be your situation that you're in. It may not be your particular point of uh, connection or your point of vulnerability that needs to be uh, shored up. But I have to speak to those uh, for whom it will. And I, yeah. I, that's a big piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, something you said in that that uh, haunts me. I, I've uh, it's haunted me for a long time. Is um, I, I am I would say most people describe me as Type A, high dominant, upfront, charismatic gifts on a stage. The shadow side of which is arrogance, self righteousness, pride, mm-hmm. and my sins get me elected to lead pasta. Right. You know, if left if left unchecked, I think that's what you're inferring. Yes. Whereas other people's sins maybe get them in jail. And yeah. it's hard hard to say on most days which ones Jesus was cautioning us against more. I, th- I think the fact that I can be sinning and uh, promoted is a pretty terrifying reality in the modern church. It, well, it is. And it's not just in terms of, of that at the big level. It's also just in terms of, uh, I mean, for instance, um, there are... It would be really easy 
to uh, there, there are some people for whom the way that that you build an audience is to come in into the middle of every evangelical controversy or whatever your whatever your your audience is, whatever that that point of controversy is and get yourself in the middle of that uh, in a way to to build that audience. Yeah. And we, we had somebody who actually had, had come through and was suggesting, you know, you really need to do that more because um, there are a lot of people who really like that. And uh, my response to that was to a quote from the old Dustin Hoffman movie, Tootsie, uh, where uh, the, the, the woman said, you know, there are a lot of men who like this particular kind of woman, uh, whatever it is. And she says, yes, but I don't like the men who are attracted to that. Yeah. And yeah. Say, yes, but but uh, yes, I know that that's the case. Uh, but I don't think that's healthy, not healthy for um, that audience, not healthy for me. And I learned that really um, very early on in ministry. Uh, I was sent um, as a doctoral student. Nobody knew who I was. Um, I was sent as a journalist. I had some journalistic training and experience uh, to cover a meeting of a a uh, a group of Baptists who had split off from my denomination because of some theological uh, uh, differences. And so I was. I was commissioned with going and reporting back from their general assembly. And when I came there, I found some uh, issues that, that were um, very different uh, theologically and very troubling uh, theologically. Uh, and so I reported those things back. Everything that I said was true, but I was the wrong person to be doing that because I noticed what was going on in me. And what was going on in me was uh, I was almost delighting, uh, sort of like a prosecuting attorney who's finding yeah. the evidence yeah. in, in prosecuting this case. And I was enjoying the sort of affirmation that was coming from my team, whatever that is, uh, at the time. Well, it was very, very destructive uh, for me spiritually. And it was almost like a an early warning carbon monoxide detector went off in the house to say this, this can happen to you and you need to guard against that. And so uh, I, I think that that, that, that reality is sort of constantly in, in front of a particular kind of personality. Friends, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've noticed that once in a while we'll talk about a concept like differentiation or we'll name a particular source of anxiety like triangulation or a double bind, but we're just giving you little pieces of the larger pie on this podcast. That's why I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience in 2020, March 10th and 11th, right here in beautiful Colorado. A two-day facilitated experience is different than a conference in that at a conference, you often sit through a whole lot of monologue. But for these two days, you'll be sitting round table. And not only will we give you a whole bunch of tools and a whole bunch of sources to help you understand anxiety, but we'll also give you a lot of time and I'll be putting you with some trained facilitators so you can try on these principles in the moment. I know that two days is a lot to give up nowadays, but you're going to come away not just knowing sources of your own anxiety, but also learning how to pay attention to anxiety in groups. 
uh, you'll come away knowing the 19 universal sources of anxiety that are common to us all. But you'll also come away having helped identify some of your own unique sources of anxiety that get you worked up, even though it may not get someone else worked up. We'll also be teaching you how anxiety is a spiritual dark force and how the nature of anxiety can be displaced with the grace of God in the moment. But not just for you, also for those with whom you're in a team. We'll be teaching some powerful tools like second order change and differentiation. We'll be helping you learn how to do a genogram and how you can break some long-term generational traits in yourself. Also, you'll learn how to notice recurring predictable patterns and how to reverse them in any group or any team or even in your family. This is perfect for a team. That's why we have uh, discounted tickets for groups of four or more. I'm also offering an early bird rate until the end of December. You can get more information at my website, stevecusswords.com. Two-day facilitated experience, March 10th and 11th in the Denver area. Chronic anxiety is generated uh, when we're not getting what we believe we need. So if we believe we need to be liked or to be understood and that's not happening, then we get chronically anxious. Uh, I find it helpful to first identify it physiologically. So in your case, would you first notice it in a spinning mind, a racing heart, a tightening gut, or like a clenched shoulders? Spinning mind and clenched shoulders together. Okay. Yeah. I'm a spinning mind person. I, I believe the lie that I can worry my way to peace. Oh, I do too, yes. Okay. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah, I tend to um, – the, the danger that I have is one of rumination. Uh, and so when I'm under uh, – one of the things I've noticed is when I'm under a great deal of stress, uh, sometimes it is because I have too much going on and I need to sort of withdraw from a time. But I found I can easily overcorrect uh, uh, in that way where I say I need to, to sort of withdraw for a time and, and, uh, and, and just, but when I do that, sometimes if I give myself enough space, it's going to lead to my ruminating and worrying and well, what did, what did so-and-so mean by that? And what did, uh, you know, all, all of those, all of those sorts of questions come to mind. Yeah. You make pathological leaps about things you don't know, for example. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend, one of my closest friends has a very similar uh, personality and he will always say, we get together every week or so group of us. And uh, he'll always say uh, that at some point in the night, he's going to wake up and think about something that he said and think was I misunderstood by saying that? Did I offend somebody? So I've started just finding whatever, uh, you know, he'll, he'll say something and I'll just say, well, now you don't have to worry anymore about what it is you're going to wake up and think about uh, tonight. And we sort of <laughs> defuse right. it, uh, defuse it that way. So it's, you know, that, that's, a, that's an issue I have. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Knowing that you're going to do it makes it a little less uh, intense. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think another challenge is it really helps a leader to identify the sources of anxiety in their life. So for example, if I know that I tend to be a people pleaser, to, to what you just stated, knowing that diffuses its power over me. What What is one or two sources of anxiety that you just know will generally make you anxious as a leader? Uh, one of those would be what you what you mentioned in terms of um, people pleasing and also um, 
Uh, I can't stand to be manipulated or to feel like I'm being manipulated. But probably the, the biggest source of anxiety is if, if I feel like I am sacrificing my integrity and authenticity. So when I have uh, the, the points in my life that are sort of ongoingly stressful are often those points where I look back and say, I was not being true to what I really believe or, or who I really am and instead just yielded to uh, some some kind of intimidation or some sort of cowardice on my part. And I, I could I could go through the exact examples of that. Uh, and they're they're very present in my mind. And so that is is something that's very, very difficult for me. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I find third question. I find that um, a lot of leaders are so others focused. Sometimes we're the last to know when we are not well. Um, how do you know when you're not well, or who in your life can help you know you're not well before you know? I I think just based upon my uh, my sort of personality, which is kind of diving within and coming back up that I, I actually do tend to know when I'm not well, I might not admit it, but I tend to know it. Uh, and so I, I tend to know it before, uh, other people. I just don't tend to know what to do about it. Yeah. Uh, and okay. so I have, I have some people, uh, around me who will know often what to do about it, but I, I, I do tend to know. Okay. That's good. Uh, one of the theories of chronic anxiety from Murray Bowen is that it's always contagious in a group. Uh, people catch anxiety like you catch a cold. Yeah. Uh, particularly in your role, where have you seen anxiety spread like fire in a group? Uh, well, it, it can often happen. Um, it can often happen among a team, and that's uh, that's one of the reasons why. One of the things that I um, there was a, a point where I was feeling particularly vulnerable uh, and, and under a particular point of stress. And I had someone, that, a very wise counselor, who said, you ought to share that with the people uh, that, that you, you serve with. Uh, and I did, and I'm not sure that that was the right thing to do. Because uh, on the one hand, there, there were some people uh, that I served with for whom that actually was it may be liberating for them to be able to, to work through some, some things they had going on. But I think for some others, it, there was a sense of, Oh no, you know, if, if, if he's expressing this, then it must really be, he must really be bad off. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how I should have handled that. And it wasn't a serious, wasn't like a, uh, you know, I'm on the, a precipice of, of breaking it was just a here's something that I'm really I'm really grappling with right now and having a difficult time with and I don't know uh, how necessarily to resolve it and that yeah that tended to give a, a a sense of I think it scared at least one person that I was I was working with okay yeah another sign of anxiety in a group is when um, a group loses its capacity to be open-minded and playful. Yeah. Uh, we become rigid. And uh, one of the signs that Ed Friedman teaches us to look for is when people 
and when groups start behaving in recurring predictable patterns, yeah, you when they behave this way, you're not surprised. Does that um, does that strike you in any way? Does that make you think of a pattern you've seen where people are in a predictable stuck pattern? Yes, and. Uh, one of the blessings that I have in my current role of service is that that hasn't happened uh, with here, but I have experienced that in other places of ministry where you had uh, a, the driving factor became risk aversion. Uh, and so w- what do we do to make sure that we're not going to um, create a sort of situation that maybe we don't feel like we have the bandwidth to deal with uh, now. And then that becomes the template for how the, and the, the organization or the ministry or whatever it is atrophies. Uh, and if what your, if what your goal is, is to sort of the, the, the other extreme and danger of the sort of quarrelsome where we're, we have to have the adrenaline rush of constantly being in the middle of tumult, uh, the other side of that is a sense of, oh, I don't want to be in tumult anymore. So let me make sure that I protect us uh, from yeah. that. So it's sort of Eugene Peterson's um, analogy of the exoskeleton uh, on, a, on a crab as opposed to the endoskeleton uh, on a person or a kitten. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the, the crab seems to be much more resilient, but not long term. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think that that can happen to an organization, too. And I've seen it happen. Yeah. I know for a lot of church leaders, uh, it can be difficult for us to, um, we conflate our identity as God's child with our role as God's employee. Yes. And I, I think um, I, what it also makes me think of is when when John said, perfect love casts out all fear. Uh, so I, 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 I'd like to ask everyone the question, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? I, I am blessed to feel very loved uh, with my wife and children. Uh, and also, uh, I have a group of, um, of friends uh, that I mentioned earlier that we meet. Um, none of them are in the same work that I'm in. All of them are musicians. Uh, I have no musical talent at all. <laughs> but we live very similar lives. Uh, in many ways, just in terms of travel and the need for creativity and all of those things. Uh, so there's a, a sense of shared connection and vulnerability there. And so, for instance, uh, right now we're we're reading through T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets uh, together. Uh, and it's one of those things I told my wife, there are a lot of things in my life because I have to go to so many things and I'm uh, an introverted kind of person. Uh, and so when something is canceled, I'm usually overjoyed that it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things that if ever there's some scheduling malfunction and it's canceled or I'm out of town and I can't be there, it's crushing mm, because it's a, it's a life-giving mm. uh, sort, of, uh, sort of thing in my life. Russell, thank you so much. Thanks for giving your time and your heart. I, I'm grateful for what you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.